The second reading today <clears throat> comes from 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're continuing our story of Samuel, beginning at verse 12. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the people who were sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. <clears throat> if the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no. Hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother <clears throat> made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another... God may mediate for the offender, but if anyone sins against the Lord, who is there or who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and favour with the Lord and with people. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honour your sons more 
than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, those who honour me I will honour, but those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house, so that no one in it will reach old age, and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done in Israel, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength, and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas? There will be a sign to you. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead. Appoint me to some priestly office so that I can have food to eat. Thanks, Peter. Uh, hi to those of you who are here in the room and those who presumably are stuck at home for various reasons today, whether it's flood or health-related. Um, glad you could join us online. Um, we're going to continue to look at this passage and this, I guess, terrible display of corruption in power. Um, but please pray with me as we do. Heavenly Father, we do pray again for those of us who are being affected by the current floods. Please be guarding life and livelihood. Please keep people safe. Um, thank you for those of us who have been able to join and for those who are, of us who are joining online. We ask that uh, your word will speak to us this evening, Father. Um, we ask that your spirit will work in our hearts and fill us with all joy and peace in believing. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, it's a well-known phrase, isn't it? And I think it, it speaks well to our uh, cynicism about leadership, perhaps, uh, our, our assumption that if you give someone a position of power, it's only a matter of time before they start using that power for personal gain. But we probably have that cynicism for good reason, right? Um, I mean, think of our political leaders, not just here, but throughout the world. It seems like every other week that we hear about another politician somewhere using their position for financial gain, for sexual immorality, to service their greed. It seems all too common. But of course, it's not just our political leaders. Sadly, it's also religious leaders. And just yesterday, in fact, I was reading yet another article about yet another religious leader who had been using his spiritual influence for power, for greed, and for sexual immorality. And I found myself thinking, wow, I feel like I've read this before. 
just with a different name and a different location. But other than that, the details sound all too familiar. Last year, you might have heard about the, um, the death of the famous American Christian leader, Ravi Zacharias. He was a, a writer, a speaker, well-known apologist. But after his death, a flood of accusations came out about things that he had been trying to keep hidden for decades, about how he had used his position of power and influence for greed and for sexual immorality. And it is so devastating to hear when that sort of stuff happens, but it happens all too often, doesn't it? I could go on. The, the story is all too familiar. And so we do have this cynicism, right, about, about leadership, our expectation, I guess, that leaders will fail us because we see it again and again. But at the same time, we want to expect more. Every time we, we have new leaders, we want to expect more of them. And so somehow, somehow we have both low expectations and high expectations of our leaders at the same time. And so every time we hear yet another story, we're both shocked and not surprised. You know, we're shocked and not surprised because we know that power corrupts. So what will we do about this perpetual problem that has been going on since forever, since 3,000 years, it seems, from this passage in 1 Samuel. That's the issue that our passage raises for us today. It's a problem in every area of leadership, whether small or great. But as we're going to see today, it's a particular problem when it comes to, I guess you could call it, leadership before God. So let's have a look again at the passage. The, the first verse, I think, really very quickly introduces us to the main issue and with no subtlety at all the problem of corrupt leadership. We were introduced to the priests, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, back at the very beginning of, of chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. But now we are told in no uncertain terms what they were like. Verse 12, the sons of Eli were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. And what a, what a terrible and tragic situation, right? That the very men who were meant to be leading the people in the worship of the Lord, in following the Lord, were most known for their corruption and their disregard for the Lord. And as we read on, we, we see what that actually looked like. And what we see is greed, abusive power, and sexual immorality. From verse 13, the common practice of these priests, um, we're told when, when people bring their sacrifices, is that they would send their servant to take their cut of the meat that was being sacrificed. And as Peter read for us, the servant would stick his big you know, three-pronged fork into the meat to get what he could out for the priests. Now, in, in principle, there is nothing wrong with the priests getting a, a, a part of the sacrifice as food for themselves. God had commanded Israel to provide food for the priests through the sacrifice, through the, the, the animals that people brought to be sacrificed. So have a look on the screen at Leviticus chapter 7. I'll just read a part of it. It says this, The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast belongs to Aaron and his sons, that is the priests. This is the portion for the food of the food offering presented to the Lord that were allotted to Aaron and his sons on the day they were presented to serve the Lord as priests. See, God had provided that the, that the priests would be fed out of the sacrifice. But these priests, in their greed, had come up with a different way to take their cut, and it seems like it was devised to get as much as they possibly could. 
But worse than that, as we read on, they would go a step further in verses 15 and 16. I think this is really where it gets, gets more significant. That they would intercept the offering before it was even offered so that they could get the very best of what there was. Let me read from verse 15 and 16. Even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I will take it by force. The priest wanted the best meat possible, as much of it as he could get, cooked exactly and only how he wanted it. And, and the crucial thing here is that he didn't care that what he was doing was actually preventing the sacrifice from happening at all. It was before the fat was burned that he was doing this. And the fat was the sacrifice. That was the part that was meant to be burned as the offering to God. The rest was to be eaten. But the fat was the sacrifice. And the priest said, no, no, don't worry about that. I'm going to take what I want. Just, just do what I say. Just give me what I want. And if anyone objected, the priest would take what he wanted by force. Greed, abuse of power, and as we're going to read further down, sexual immorality. These priests would, would sleep with the women who were serving there. It sounds more like, I don't know, a gangster's club or a brothel, doesn't it? than the holy sanctuary of the Lord that God had given as the place where the Lord would be worshipped. What an awful display of human corruption and abuse of power. These are the religious practices that God had given them and they just become an industry of abuse and a place of corruption and to line the pockets and fatten the bellies of the very people who were meant to be leading in the worship of the Lord. What a, what a tragedy. But as I said, I wonder if this tragedy, maybe as we read it here, shocks us less than it should because you know, we've heard it before, right? We're, we're kind of used to hearing this kind of thing in our own day. We're used to hearing about people using their power for greed, for personal gain, for abusing the people that they have power over. And I'm sure that you don't have to think too hard to come up with examples. I mean, in, in the context of what we're talking about here, religious examples are the ones that come to mind most obviously, and we could probably cite plenty of those. I've mentioned Ravi Zacharias, and even as I just think of my own personal experiences and my, my own life, I won't be too explicit because we're being recorded online, but I think of leaders who I've looked up to, who I've respected, who, who have been significant in influencing me in my own faith, and how devastated I was when I discovered that this person was not what they were claiming to be. And the sad thing was, I have more than one story like that from my own personal experience, and maybe you do too. But as I said, it's not just confined to the space of religious leaders. Political leaders, it was in the media again this week, but it's hardly a new problem. Pretty much since time began, kings and rulers have had a reputation for using their power for selfish gain. And I guess in these days we kind of have a new, a new form of leader in the celebrities and the sports stars that we put on a pedestal and hold up as social leaders and then we're surprised 
although not really surprised when they fail to live up to expectations again and again and again. And so this kind of shocking situation with Hophni and Phinehas sounds all too familiar. But coming back to our passage, I think what we'll discover is that the reason that this shocking tragedy is all too familiar is because the root of the problem with Hophni and Phinehas is one that is all too common. And it's back there in verse 12, the first verse. They had no regard for the Lord. More literally, they did not know the Lord. Although I think no regard for the Lord is probably a good translation here because it's not talking about a lack of knowledge about God. I mean, these were the priests, right? It's talking about a desire to not know the Lord, a conscious rejection of knowing God. They lived as if God wasn't there. Whatever they said with their mouth, they had no place for God in their hearts or in their actions. They had no regard for him. And now, if you were here the last two weeks, I want you to think about how significantly different Hophni and Phinehas are from Hannah, who we heard about last week. Remember what she said about God? She was so conscious of God in in everything, particularly with regard to power. She said, God is the one who lifts up the powerful, sorry, who lifts up the, the humble and who brings down the powerful. God is in control of all power, and that gives humility in power. It gives consciousness that human power is under the authority of God and given by God and accountable to God, and that changes how we use power. So do you see how Hophni and Phinehas are just the opposite of Hannah? Because they had no regard for the Lord, of course they're going to use their power for whatever means they can for themselves. You take God out of the picture, why not do that? It's almost comical though, isn't it? This, this tragic irony that these godless men are serving at the altar of God. I mean, it sounds like the latest Netflix original, the, the storyline for that. You go home, turn on, oh, look, there's Hockney and Phineas. It's all too familiar. When you take God out of the picture, power becomes a weapon for the powerful to use for their own benefit. And invariably, corruption follows. So we shouldn't be surprised when we see this happening. Because the problem is not really the power. I guess you could say the the power highlights the problem. It gives the opportunity for the problem to show itself, the problem that's actually lurking in the hearts of each one of us. That desire to take God out of the picture and use power for my own benefit. You see it everywhere, right? You see it in in the the schoolyard bully who's stronger than the other kids or who has a friend who's stronger than the other kids to get what they want. You see it in in the workplace bully. You see it in the person who is able to manipulate other people for their benefit using whatever means they can. And so I think the I guess the first thing we should think about as we read this is this should be a wake-up call to each one of us because the fact is that most of us have some power in some form over some people. Most of us have some power in some form over some people, whether it is from physical strength or from our intelligence or from our ability to argue our case or from social influence or from personal charisma or from the power that comes from our position in an organisation or from our financial influence. 
Power exists in, in lots of different forms, and most of us have some power in some circumstances. So the question for each one of us then becomes, how am I using my power, as small as it may seem? Am I wielding my power, conscious that I am under God, that God is the one who gives power, that God is the one who takes it away, and that God is the one that I am accountable to for how I have used the power that he's given me? That's the question about power that we need to ask of ourselves. And it should give us, I think, a, a certain amount of humility and caution when we see corruption in leadership around us. Because in the right or perhaps the wrong circumstances, that could easily be me or it could easily be you. But I think this also brings us back to the bigger problem. If power corrupts, who then can actually lead us in the things that really matter? And particularly in the context of this passage, who can really lead us when it comes to the things of God? Who can lead us before God? Which I think is really what the rest of the passage will address for us. As I said, in one sense, this, this kind of horrible but typical example, this is a horrible but typical example of human power, the corruption of it. But in verse 17, it highlights the significance of this problem with regard to the priests. They were sinning against God. Verse 17. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. See, indirectly, I guess you could say, these moral abuses of the priests is sinning against God. The stuff that they do to other people, when one person wrongs another person, God is angry about that because God made that other person, God loves that other person, God cares about that. But what these priests were doing, it's like they were spitting in God's face directly. They were taking the very thing that was designed to honour God and they were taking it away for themselves. They were meant to enable the worship of God, but they were preventing it. They were meant to provide a connection between the people and God, but they were actually providing a blockage. And so the question then becomes, for these priests, who is going to intercede for them with God? Verse 25, Eli points out this problem. Verse 25, Eli says to his sons, if one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? You see what this is saying? If one person sins against another, then God may, may intercede. But if someone sins against God, who is going to force God to forgive? Who is going to bring God to the, to the peace table, to the peace talks? It reminds me actually of uh, a movie that Helena and I watched recently called The Green Book. People seen the movie The Green Book? Anyone? Yeah, a few nods. It's, it's basically about two men, a, a, a white man and a black man, who were touring the southern states of the United States uh, in the middle of the 20th century amidst significant kind of racial um, segregation and the issues that come out from that. But at one point in the story, these two men get arrested and put in, in the lockup in the, in the police station. Um, but they're allowed to have their one phone call. And we don't know it at the time, but it turns out that one of these men knows the Kennedys, as in like JFK, the president at the time, and his brother Bobby Kennedy. 
And so before long, the police captain at the station gets a phone call from Bobby Kennedy demanding to release these men. See, that man in a high place, Bobby Kennedy, was interceding for them. It kind of, it does well in that situation to have a friend in a high place. But what happens when the person you have wronged is the one in a high place? Who's going to call him up and force him to let you go? Who's going to call him up and force him to forgive you, to go easy on you? That's the problem that Eli points out for his sons. Who will intercede for you with God? They have made enemies with the one person who no one can force to the negotiating table. It's a big problem. But it's not just a problem for them. It's a problem for everyone. Because the priests were the ones who were meant to be interceding for everyone else. And if the priest needs someone to intercede for them and there is no one, what hope does anyone else have? They're looking to the priests for that. And the priests themselves need someone to intercede for them. So the problem with the priests is a problem for everyone. Who will intercede? Which brings us to our final point, that God will raise up his faithful priest. As you can see from the prophecy in verse 27 onwards, at the the last part of our passage, God will not allow this corruption in the priests to continue. He had given Eli and his sons every blessing, every opportunity, every grace, but they had thrown it back in God's face. And God is saying, enough is enough. He will not stand for it any longer. He says in verse 30, I will not continue to honour those who despise me. And so God turns the promised blessing of Eli's family into a promise of curse. And throughout the rest of the books of Samuel and into 1 Kings, we see that prophecy coming true. But along with this promise of judgment, we also see a glimmer of hope. The promise that God will raise up his faithful priest. You see it in verse 35. God says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. God will raise up a faithful priest for himself. And as we're reading this chapter, we can't help but wonder, I think, whether we've already met who this is talking about whether it's talking about Samuel. Did you notice as we read through that sandwiched in between all these terrible stories of the corrupt priests, we see these good glimmers of Samuel. It's like a a seam of gold in between worthless rock. You see in verse 18, but Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. And verse 26, the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favour with the Lord and with people. And so we read this and we think, well, could this be him? Could this boy Samuel be the faithful priest that God is going to raise up? And Samuel himself seems quite promising throughout his lifetime. But in the end, his household is no better than Eli's. Over the page, over a few pages in chapter 8, verse 3, we read this about Samuel's sons. But Samuel's sons did not follow in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Exactly the same 
as Eli's sons. Samuel seems like the obvious candidate, but God does not bring a lasting priesthood through his line. And so we continue to look in the story of one Samuel and into the story of one Kings, and another priest presents himself, a priest by the name of Zadok and his priestly line. And I think you could say that Zadok's line is a partial fulfilment of God's promise here. God did establish the priestly line of Zadok, who served faithfully before God's anointed king throughout the time of the kings of Israel, until it is, that is, the kingdom fell, and there were no more anointed kings of Israel, and the line of the priests ended. So there's partial fulfilment of this prophecy, seemingly in Samuel, maybe in, in Zadok, but ultimately this prophecy is fulfilled when the faithful priest and the anointed king become one person, Jesus. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus has become a faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And the thing that sets Jesus apart is different from every other priest or every other leader that we might look to. He is not corrupt. Let me read what it says in chapter 7 of Hebrews about Jesus. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, unlike the other high priests. He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus, the incorruptible priest. Remember the warning that Eli made for his sons, who will intercede for you? We discover that person who will intercede for us is Jesus. We need a pure and incorruptible high priest. And so it says in that same chapter of Hebrews, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus can intercede for us. See, no one could force God to the negotiating table, as I said. No one could force God to forgive us or to make peace with us. God took that on himself, though. God did it of his own initiative because he loves us. He provided the mediator, the interceder that we need. And so we can come to God completely, but only through Jesus. So what does this say about our earthly leaders, the leaders around us, the kind of leadership that we need? I think we're right, of course, to want leaders who are not corrupt. That's a good thing to want and who use their power for the sake of others. And you know, I think it's fascinating that our expectation of leaders in our best moments actually comes from what we've learned from the example of Jesus the leader who came not to be served, but to serve. That's the example that Jesus has given. We want that in our political leaders, right? Who won't serve themselves, but who will serve others. We require it in our church leaders. 
Those are good expectations to desire and to require. And the Apostle Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. We want leaders who are following this good example of leadership that Jesus has given us. But I think that before we get there, what this passage is actually pushing us to recognise is that before we need a leader like Jesus, what we need is Jesus. He is the leader that we need. Because the corruption that we see in Hophni and Phinehas is a corruption that is in every human heart, in your heart and in mine, except for one. It's a corruption in every leader that we might look to. And so particularly when it comes to our standing before God, we need to make sure that we are looking in the right place for the one and the only person who can lead us to God and who can stand before us in God's presence and can intercede for us. We have no other priest but Jesus. And any other expectation of any other leader is bound to disappoint us and fail. But Jesus is the leader who will never fail. He is the great and faithful priest, pure and incorruptible. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for us. Let's give thanks that he, to God that he has provided the leader that we truly need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are at the same time shocked and not surprised every time we hear of leaders disappointing us. It saddens us. Um, we, we do want to put so much hope in leaders. Father, we thank you that you have met our problem of a lack of someone to intercede for us in your son, Jesus. Father, may we always look to him as the one that we need to stand between us and you and to bring us to peace with you. And Father, may we ourselves recognise that inasmuch as we have power, you have caused, called us to use our power for the good of others and not for our own selfish ends. And so, Father, we ask that you will help us to have a consciousness of you in all of those situations where you have given us power, that we will have a regard for you as Hophni and Phinehas didn't, and that as we do this, it will shine a great example of what Jesus has left us with, that like him, we seek to serve and not to be served. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.